Welcome to Just the Right Book. I'm Roxanne Cody. We recently had Michael Kindness and Ann Kingman join us in the Just the Right Book studio. They had one of the best book podcasts called Books on the Nightstand. It launched in 2008 and ended its run last summer. And to give you an idea of the number of fans they had, their Facebook page still boasts over 7,000 likes and almost 7,000 followers. So let's take a listen to Michael and Anne, and you probably want to grab a pen because you're going to want to write down everything they mention. So we're just going to, you know, talk books. Our favorite thing? Okay. I call them book reps extraordinaire. Uh, They represent Random House. We have had the good fortune to have them. How how many years have you sold to R.J. Joyas? I think it's maybe 12 years. 12 years. And I opened you up when you guys opened. So I I was like six months after you opened, I was your rep. Wow. So you must have been like five. I wish. (laughs) I wish, yes. (laughs) Anne and Michael, when uh, they come to R.J. Julia's or talk to our booksellers or our book buyers, if they say it's great, we know it's true. Why don't we start with the simple thing? Michael, what are you loving? Uh, Right now, (laughs) I'm reading a book that's coming out this fall by John Boyne, who wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which was a a young adult book, a middle reader book. But we sold it to a lot of adults. And actually, my 11-year-old is reading it right now, and I'm reading it with him, and it's fantastic. But I'm reading his adult novel called The Heart's Invisible Furies, which is uh, the the flip – Description of it is it's sort of a gay Irish garb. So it's very John Whoa. Irving-esque. <laughs> he actually dedicates the book to John Irving who read it and has given a blurb for it. But it's the, this incredible story that jumps seven years through the life of this one man. And it starts when he's born and then he's when he's seven, when he's 14 and so on. And, and is it semi-autobiographical? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I don't know enough of, about It's funny John how we always want it to be when, yeah. it, when it seems so specific. Yeah, but it's it's – it's just an, the writing is unbelievable, and I'm I kind of want to be reading it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't finished it yet? No, I haven't. I'm about half halfway through. Well, maybe we'll get him on the show. That would be the great. boy in the striped pajamas. For anybody who hasn't read that, is a slim book. As Michael said, it was a YA book. It's set during World War II at Auschwitz, mm-hmm. um, and is uh, narrated essentially about the son of the commandant. Mm-hmm of Auschwitz. And it it's a very powerful book in an extremely sort of simple writing style. And as somebody who reads more Holocaust books than one ought to, I would put that in like the kind of book you could accommodate without going down an awful ugly rabbit hole, but be struck by that would be a, a really great one. So I'm excited about that. Well, there's a new edition out. I think it's the 10th anniversary or, or something like that. It's Gee. illustrated by Oliver Jeffers, who did The the Day the Crans Quit and a lot of other things. But his sort of rough, sketchy style is really interesting. Neat. Okay, great. And what are you reading? Well, I'm also reading a book that's coming out this fall called Endurance by Scott Kelly, which is the memoir of the first astronaut to spend a year in the International Space Station. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, it is one of those books. It, it I feel like I'm reading a thriller, even though I'm at the part. I'm not yet at the part where and obviously it gets like you really know. exciting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, he comes back alive. Um, what's really cool is he's one of two twin. He's a twin brother. 
Um, his twin brother, Mark, is also an astronaut and actually married to, married um, to uh, Gabrielle Gabriel. Giffords. Yeah. Um, and so it was a scientific study to see what would happen to a human being in space for a year because yeah. they do think it will take about a year to get to Mars. And so they studied both of them. But this is Scott's story. Um, and I'm not that far into it, but it starts where he's a young boy and actually really directionless. Um, he's not one of those kids who knew what he wanted to do from the like time he was Like I'll be an astronaut, eight. yeah. Yeah, I mean he said he wanted to be an astronaut, but like he didn't know what that meant. And it wasn't until, you know, I think college when he really decided that he, he could and that was after, you know, almost not passing high school. Um, so it's a really inspirational story too, but just so outside of any experience I've ever had that it's it's like – I don't know, reading a science fiction novel, except it's all true. You know, I've seen interviews of uh, the Kelly brothers, Mm -hmm. and there's something so compelling and admirable about them. You know, they've always struck me as having an interesting combination of being kind of military-ish, kind of circumscribed, but incredibly warm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Scott Kelly came and spoke to our sales conference, which um, is when all of the sales reps for Penguin Random House get together. Um, and it was an amazing, amazing speech. Um, I, if you ever have a chance to meet him or see him, highly recommend Well, I hope I will. I hope maybe we'll get him to Connecticut. That'd be great. So the new book that I'm reading that I think I have now seen 9,000 reviews of is Exit West mm-hmm. by – now, tell me if I pronounce his name wrong. It is Mohsin Hamid. Uh, I think it's Mohsin Hamid. Hamid. Because I listened to the audio of this and that's how he pronounced his name. So Exit West is the is a slightly magic, realistic story of immigration. It starts in an unnamed city with a young couple who decide they need to leave their city, which is under siege and civil war and sounds very much like a city in Syria – but it the magic realism of it is they emigrate through a door and then they're in the next place. So it's missing the crossing the mountains, the ships that are at risk. And I saw an interview with him and he had a fascinating description of the reason for the door. And that is our borders are porous. There are a remarkable number of people that merely emigrate from one place to the other. And he had this fascinating analogy where he said, even if you don't move, you emigrate in a way because the places around you change. So this tells the story of this couple as they emigrate from one place to the other. And there are a version of tent cities that are created. They end up at a sort of, uh, what, what would you call it, Michael, like a mirror city in San Francisco. Right. Would you describe it that way? I, I remember London. I remember London and the Greek island. Yeah, they were in Mykonos. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just, uh, the thing The thing I think is interesting is even though he takes the journey out of it, there's still an effort. It's not like they can just walk through a door because once the governments figure out that there are these doors, they're highly um, guarded and... He makes it hard for them to just walk through a door. It's really interesting. So here's all the reasons I think it's compelling. Obviously, it's timely. It forces you to think about immigrants in a broader context, obviously in an extremely human context. It addresses the impact on relationships as 
people move from one place to the other where some want to conform, some want to, you know, break out into a different direction. It's a book I finished overnight. Mm -hmm. Are you listening to it, Michael? I I listened to it and I listened to it in one day. And I'm glad I waited until I had a lot of travel in one day so I was able to not have to wait to finish it. I just – it was – I think it's the book to read this spring. I really do. I think all the reviews and all the attention it got is deserved. And I think it's the kind of book that does slightly rearrange your brain. I was just at a bookstore this morning and I was talking about it and someone said it's this year's Underground Railroad. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, you know, I liked it. I liked the Underground Railroad, but I just love this because, you know, Underground Railroad, it was compelling to follow the story of Cora, who was an escaped slave for anyone who might not be familiar with the book. But in this book, in Exit West, I felt totally immersed and with the couple as they moved. I was, I was, I was there, and you kind of were in Underground Railroad also, but I don't know, there was something just even more riveting about Exit West. Do you both find how people are reading changing? Yes. How, what are you? Yes. What are you well, saying? I mean, people is you know, a, yeah, a, 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 a generalization. The people that I am surrounded by who are readers um, tend to be reading, I think, more topically. Yeah, um, certainly books that have sort of a, a message that is somehow tying into what the times are right now and and what's happening in the world. Um, and also trying to, I think, educate themselves, mm. often through fiction, which I think is a great way to do it, um, about the past, like Underground Railroad. I mean, I think part of the success of that book, besides the fact that it was a fantastic book, is it's something that a lot of us said, I really don't know as much about this as I should. And it's so important, not just to the past, but to what's happening in the present. And I think uh, learning through fiction is a great way because sometimes there's more truth in fiction than there is in the nonfiction. That yeah. You you know, it was interesting when um, – I always think of this line that Anna Quinlan had when she left the New York Times as a columnist to become a fiction writer. And she – and when asked what she considered a challenge to that is, she said, when you write fiction, you have to stick to the probable. That's a good point. And, and that was before today right. when the news was even more fantastical. Michael, what do you see about people reading differently? I think it's exactly what Anne said, and that's definitely indicative of how I'm reading. I've been finding these lists of books of things you should know about the past and how we can work in the present with, with the situations we have. And I've been trying to read from those as yeah. much as possible. Um around my work reading because there is work stuff that I have to do. We sent out a newsletter. You know, I wrote a Dear Reader from R.J. Joy is about what to read now when we put up a display called Need to Know. And one of the books that I talked about was the Federalist Papers Mm -hmm. because I think there's a lot of conversation about, okay, what did the Constitution envision as the balance of power between or among the judicial, legislative, and executive branch. And it was, there was a lot of interest in any number of books that we, you know, we talked about how propaganda works. We talked about Plot Against America and the Sinclair Lewis book, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of the books that you've read about. But the book that there was the most enthusiasm for was the Federalist Papers. And I think to your point, to both your points, people now feel like they need to fill in the gaps of things that they took for mm-hmm. granted that they understood or it didn't matter if they understood them. And now there's a zeal, I would say, for trying to make sure they've got the facts down. You know, reading 
For instance, I think reading American Lion, Mm -hmm. uh, which is John Meacham's biography of Andrew Jackson, who was really the last populist president. And in some ways, there are people who think mirrors this presidency. Mm -hmm. What, I, what I've really wanted, and I'm, if there are any publishers listening, take, take my idea and run with it, please, is I want a, a, a simple how the government works. Book. Yeah. And I'd love it if you could read the top level where you get mm-hmm. a good overview and then the, set, the middle of the pages are more information and the bottom is even more. So you could decide how much you want, but to just get an idea of what can be done and what can't be done. So someone please write that book. No, Michael. You should do it, Michael. Michael, <laughs> AA, you work for the largest publisher on the planet. I have. I have, have you spoken to them? <laughs> I, have spread, I have spread my idea around, so we'll see. But I think Anne's right. Get writing. Uh, that, that's a lot of research. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. What else are you reading? Well, you know, there's a book that I read that sort of ties into everything that we're talking about. Um, it's coming out in April. It's called American War by... Uh, oh, my God. I'm loving did you that read it? book. Omar El Akkad, I believe is how you spell his last name or pronounce his last name. Um, it is one of those books. I read it before the election, and I really now want to go back and read it I'm after reading the it election because I think... I think I would approach it a little differently. Um, it is, I guess we'd call it an apocalyptic novel or a dystopian novel. Um, but it's, again, one of those books where, um, much like The Handmaid's Tale with what Margaret Atwood did, um, he did not include anything in this novel that did not happen somewhere in the world. Um, it just happens to be set in the United States, but all of the events happened elsewhere. Um, but it talks about the second U.S. Civil War that's mm. in in his book will happen. And again, it's fiction, um, but he sets it up as it will happen about 50 years from now when um, – Environmental devastation has wiped up both coasts. Most of the population of the U.S. has moved into the center. The U.S. government has been relocated to Columbus, Ohio. And because of the environmental devastation, the government has decided that they're going to outlaw fossil fuels. Uh, But there's a group of states in the South who refuse to give up their gasoline-powered cars and machinery. And so they secede, and that sparks the second U.S. Civil War. And we learn all this through newspaper clippings and excerpts from history books. But the real story is um, this young girl when we meet her name, Surat, who with her family is in a refugee camp because of circumstances beyond their control and they're in the deep south. And it's kind of a coming of age story. She grows up in this refugee camp. Um, But what's really interesting to me is we know from the very first chapter that she does something later that is really, really terrible. And we see kind of how she becomes... um, how, how she gets into that, how she ends up doing what she does and why. Mm. And we're almost rooting for her um, or we are rooting for her even though we know that it's not necessarily something that we should be doing. And it's it's really complex and I think it brings a lot of issues in the world today kind of it really distilled into this compelling, compelling read. He's a pretty – I had – had is this his debut novel? It's his debut novel. He's a journalist. He's covered that um, – the Egyptian Spring, uh, the Arab Spring, and he's been in Afghanistan. He's done a lot of um, really important journalism. I don't think many people know who he is, um, but they will. I hadn't heard of him, but that's interesting that you say that because I found the approach reporting-like. Mm-hmm. In other words, it felt it is dystopian, apocalyptic uh, for sure, and hopefully not something that, you know, is predictive. But his approach makes it feel like it happened because it does feel like journalism. Yeah, you feel like you're reading the history. What I really loved about it, too, is that, um, you know, this isn't a book that you're going to say, oh, what beautiful sentences there are. You know, right. you're not necessarily underlining things. Um, the author kind of gets out of the way. So you do, you feel like you're reading 
news accounts a newspaper. And, and contemporary story of this girl. Yeah. Oh, I'm ex- oh, it is coming out. In it's April, coming in April. I'm just mm-hmm. reading it. I'm just reading it now. Yeah, April fourth, I think, is the until date. Yeah. All right. Now this will totally change the topic. I'm not going to say the whole name, uh, but what got my attention is there was an article recently in the New York Times about anti self help books. It, it didn't have the title of this book, and it just had the subtitle. So I will substitute the word "damn" <laughs> for a word that begins with F, which I actually think I wish she had used that F word less because I think it distracts from what otherwise is a pretty interesting book. So the name of the book is The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Damn. It's the subtitle that really got me to pick it up. So the subtitle of the book is How to Stop Spending Time You Don't Have with people you don't like, doing things you don't want to do. So Sarah Knight, who's the author of this, this is a parody, obviously, for if there's like somebody on the planet who doesn't know about the life-changing magic of tidying up, which some people are devoted to and some people, I interviewed an author the other day who who just cannot stand the idea <laughs> of tidying up. She said, it doesn't bring me joy to tidy up. I want my things around and I want them to be a mess. But what Sarah Knight does in this parody is really do something very interesting, which helps you think about just how you spend your time. And that if you get through the swear words which I think are unfortunate that she's got them all. I probably sound like an old lady saying that. Oh, get rid of those swear words. Um, what she does is help you think about how to do that without being a jerk, you know, or hurting people's feelings or just being, you know, without being a jerk about it, but really thinking about how you talk to people. So, for instance, she's got something. Let's say you spend a weekend at somebody's lake house and you've had a great time. You send them a thank you note. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when you say no to them to going to like Renaissance weekend or some, <laughs> you know, some concert you don't want to go to, they're not going to think of you as somebody who, it, you know, is is being a jerk and not grateful for the invitation or not thoughtful that you've done that. So if you can gloss over the swear words, I do think this is worth reading. I mean, do you find, do both of you or each of you find yourselves doing a lot of these, spending time you don't have with people you don't want to be with? Well, you have little kids, so... Mine aren't little anymore, but yeah. I've gotten much better about saying no to things in the yeah. last couple of years. And what, what what do you think has been the biggest contributor to your being able to do that? Getting old mm. and just realizing that there's exactly. only so many hours left in, you know, my productive life or whatever. Yeah. Michael, how about you? For me, it was just realizing there are only so many hours in the day Ooh. and that... Um, I made the conscious decision to join the PTO at my kid's school, and that meant I couldn't volunteer for Boy Scouts or other sorts of right. things. And I, you know, I, you know, there are parents who will try to make you feel bad for that, but you just there's this you got to pick. There's this new saying that I sort of hate and love at the same time, and it's "you do you," <laughs> and it's just that's it. Just be yourself. Be. The person you want to be, focus on what you want to focus on. Here, here's the danger to me, and I think Sarah actually talks about this a little bit. Where do you find the line between just being a self-indulgent person with doing what's being responsible to your community and your family? Th- that, to me, is where it always seems kind of slippery. It always seems to me, it often seems to me that the people who say, 
I realized it's time for me are people for whom it's always been time for them. I rarely hear selfless <laughs> people make that statement. You know, it just seems like, I mean, and there's a difference. And I think what she talks about is just how you find that, yeah. how you find that sort of in between. Michael, what else are you reading? A book that I just read, um, or no, a book that I read that has just come out um, on March 28th is The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley by Hannah Tinty, which I just absolutely fell in love with. Uh, her last book was a novel called The Good Thief that I also loved. Mm-hmm. But this book is – she said she based it sort of on the twelve labors of Hercules. Yeah. And the the twelve lives of this character are, are referred to the fact that um, this is a man who in his past life was uh, a, a criminal and was a sort of an, an enforcer. And he had been shot twelve times. And you get the story of him and his teenage daughter, Lou, who live in this small town on the coast of Massachusetts. You'll get a chapter of that, and then you'll jump into the past. Mm. And the first chapter in the past is called Bullet Number One. And you find out, you find his story out through all of the times that he's been shot. And I felt like the sections in the present were like a Richard Russo novel. Yeah. And the sections in the past were like, um, I, I haven't read Elmore Leonard, but one of my fellow reps said it was like it was like reading an Elmore Leonard novel, those sections in the past. And I just think the relationship that she created between these two people, this man and his daughter, and the way his past comes back to haunt him, I completely lost myself in this book. I thought the way she wrote about Lou's relationship with her dad was just classic, just classic of a type of relationship. For one, you don't see many stories about a single dad with a daughter, mm-hmm. right? You see, you know, there's plenty of stories we've all read about the mom being on her own. And man, I just loved Lou. Mm-hmm. I loved her. Yeah. I I just thought the way Hannah created that character, and it feels real. I mean, her father was kind of crazy in many ways, but it felt pretty real the way their relationship was and her spunk in his love. Well, I mean, Hannah grew up in Salem, and she said it in a town Mm. that's very much like Gloucester, I think. Uh, So I think she probably saw people like that growing up, and and that's just— what she knows. And that is that out yet or it's coming out? It's, in, um, it came out March 28th. And she's just the coolest woman. She uh, started... One Story. One Story. Yeah. D- describe for everybody what that is. So it's, it's like a subscription service or you subscribe to this magazine and it is one story sent to you per month. It comes in a little pamphlet form. It comes in an envelope and you get a story every month. And what's great about it is she'll find, I think recently she had a story from Ann Patchett, and then the next month there was a story from someone who had never published anything right. before. So she curates all these. Or, and they're beautifully produced. Yeah, they're just, I mean, they're very simply produced, but you, when you get them all lined up on your shelf, they look really great. But she doesn't repeat authors, so you get such a wide variety of story telling types and and authors. And Anne, you were the one who introduced yeah, me to that. It's, it's certainly my favorite literary journal or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and because it's one story a month, it's easy to digest. There's no ads or anything. I mean, it's not fancy. Yeah. But it feels really special when you get it. And um, I don't know if they're still doing one story for teens, but they did that for a oh, while really? too, which um, my daughter enjoyed. Um, so I don't know if they're still doing that, but I would look into that. 
And what are you reading? Um, well, there's a couple books that I'm just crazy about. But right now, the one that I haven't stopped thinking about is The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel. I don't know if you've read that. I don't. I um, haven't. It is out now. Um, and it's nonfiction. It's set in uh, northern Maine uh, where people have a lot of summer cottages. And over the years, you know, they shut down the summer cottages for the winter and go home and then they come open them in the summer. I have a house in one of those towns. Well, there you go. Um, if you found anything interesting missing, um, like food or clothing or tools, Tools, um, chances are you would have said, oh, it must have been the Northwoods Hermit. And there was this legend of this Northwoods Hermit because people would find these odd things missing. Well, it turns out that there was indeed someone who was breaking into these cottages and they um, set a trap. They caught this man. And it turned out to be this man, Christopher Knight, who in 1987 basically drove a borrowed vehicle up into the woods of Maine, abandoned it, walked into the woods, and did not come out until he was caught 27 years later. Um, he claims to have spent every night but one outside. He They found this camp that he had. This book was based on an article that the author Michael Finkel did in Outside Magazine, um, and it's an expansion of that. And Michael Finkel started this correspondence with Christopher Knight you know, to find out what, what drove him to spend 27 years in the woods. Um, according to Christopher Knight, the whole time he was there, he passed one hiker on the path and said hello. Those were the only words he spoke to another human being the whole time he was there. Uh, he was still wearing the same eyeglasses that he had when he went in. I couldn't see anything because his prescription had changed. Um, and he really just, you know, the book explores why why he did this. And, and it doesn't really necessarily come up with an answer, but it explores, like, the idea right now, I think a lot of us are like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go off the grid and be away from civilization? And, and he actually did this. So there's a little bit of that kind of voyeuristic thing. Um, it's not true crime at all. It's really an, an exploration of who this guy is and, and what drove him to do it. Um, and the fascinating part for me is um, he did do some time in jail. And um, after or before, after when he was caught, after he was caught, yeah. um, it was a big to do when the community was like, "Do you jail this guy or yeah. do you not?" Um, so he did spend some time in jail, and um, Michael Finkel talks a little bit about his life after he got out, which is the question that I think was on everybody's mind: is like, how how can he go into this normal life um, after after all this? So it it's a great great read. Um, even people who don't live in Maine or have nothing to do with Maine. I mean, booksellers all across the country have really loved this. Um, it's gotten some great reviews. Gee, that wasn't on my radar yet. Well, there Thanks, you go. Anne. You're welcome. <laughs> it does remind me of a book when you talk about the kind of desire to go off the grid. One of the books I read years ago, I'm not even sure if it's in print, it's called 50 Days of Solitude, actually also set in Maine, by Doris, I think, Gumbach. G-U-M-B-A-C-H. And she took 50 days. When she wrote this book, there wasn't the internet. So there wasn't disconnecting from technology, but there was disconnecting. And I thought she did a brilliant job of both showing you the appeal and the danger. Mm-hmm. of that kind of solitude. Yeah. So I, I'd recommend that one to pair with that Sounds one. Sounds great, yeah. Michael, what have you got? Uh, a book that's coming out not until July. I'm sort of going a little further ahead because I love this book so much. Uh, it's called Reading with Patrick by M- Michelle Kuo. And she is someone who, when she graduated from college, decided to um, sign up for Teach for America. And she was assigned to a small town in Arkansas, right on the Mississippi Delta. <clears throat> and she went into a high school where, as is the case with a lot of small, poor towns, the kids sometimes didn't show up because they were needed to work or um, they just were not 
engaged, and she was able to reach a lot of these kids and teach them literature. And when her two years were, I think she spent two years there, when her time was up, she went to Harvard for to become a lawyer. So jump ahead, she's graduating. She gets a call that her star student, Patrick Browning, I believe, she gets a call that Patrick, who was the probably the the student she reached the most has been arrested for murder mm. and is in prison. And she decides to not go to California to take the job that she's been offered. She goes back down there and starts meeting with Patrick in prison and they start talking about books again. Mm. And he, they, they have such a, a great connection. She's actually donating all the proceeds, her all of her proceeds for this book to a trust that she set up for his daughter. Um, I kind of describe this as reading Lolita in Tehran for the American South. It's this place where mm. a lot of these kids don't have access to this literature or they're being taught books that they can't relate to. And she found a way to find the right books to recommend to them, specifically to Patrick, and to talk about them. And it's just... Oh, I'm excited. I, I really, Michael brought really the book it. for me, so I'm going to be able to read it and report <laughs> back on it. That's great, Michael. I hope you love it as much as I did. All right, Anne, how about one more book, and then we're going to ask you one one last question. All right. So I'm going to change tempo a little bit to this book, Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine, that I just love. But it's one of those books, Roxanne, I know you have this happen all the time. People will come in and they'll say, I don't want something sad. I want right. something happy. And it's always a struggle, especially for those of us who like dark books. Yeah. <laughs> um, because some of us believe that, like, you can't have a book. There's no a good story book if happy. everything <laughs> is happy, right? Um, but my, my recommendations are always The Rosie Project or Be Frank With Me. And this is in that vein. Okay. Um, and it's called Standard Deviation. It's the story of a man, Graham, and his second wife, Audra. And Audra is this person that we we all know someone like her, but she's kind of expanded in this book. Um, she's the type of person she knows everybody. If you need a plumber, you call her. If you need a doctor, she'll know exactly who to go to. She also, if she goes to the grocery store, she'll invite the cashier home for dinner. Um, she's just that larger-than-life person. And Graham is totally the opposite, but they have this happy marriage. But Audra is so over the top that she strikes up a friendship with Graham's first wife and invites her on vacation with them. And oh, yeah, they have yeah. this weird, Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and he starts having feelings for his first wife again, thanks to his second wife. Um, meanwhile, they have this uh, – Graham and Audra have this child who's just amazing. He's probably somewhere on the autistic spectrum. He's not labeled in the book at all, but he's obsessed with origami. And he's just this great character too. And so it's this family story. Um, she's – it's super smart. It's it's literary. Um, Catherine Haney did a, a short story collection called Sing, Single Carefree Mellow that got all kinds of great acclaim. But this novel, I just love it. I mean there's a little bit of, you know, sad and dark things. But nothing terrible. It's a feel-good novel, yeah. but it's super well-written. It's funny. There's lines that I underline. People need a break. It is. It's just – it's a great, great read, and I hope that people discover it because it's just wonderful. So here I brought you a copy. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to ask, what's the book that changed your life? Well, it's really – it's personal. I don't know that it's the book that's changed everybody – you know, going to change anyone else's life. Um, and it does go back to childhood. Uh, Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Yeah. Um, and the reason is because I moved around a lot when I was a kid. And um, when I was in fifth grade, I read that book really early on in the year. And it was the thing that got me friends because I told everybody else about it. And I was like the cool <gasps> kid that was like passing this that. book around. And, but so 
flash forward is when I was out of college looking for a job and I was told to go to this interview at this place called Dell Publishing and I walked in and there was a poster and it had Are You There God on the wall and I realized that this company was the publisher of that book, which I didn't know at the time. Um, and so that <laughs> took me back and I was like, I'll sweep the floors if I have to to work here. Um, it's actually the same company I'm, I'm at now. Um, and also it's, you know, it was a precursor to the kind of job I have. I mean, I recommend books yeah, to you people recommend all books. day long. And it was like, it sort of... And I never heard that story. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Judy Bloom. Uh, you gave me friends and a career. Wow. And so the interesting thing is, uh, I wonder if this would be true for a boy and would it be true now, that it was cool to recommend a book. I think there's there's some of that. I think it, it was lucky that that was one of those books that was cool enough if it had been I don't know, a Beverly Cleary or something, maybe it wouldn't have been quite so, you know, the, Are You There, God? It was a little subversive at the time. Yeah. People didn't talk about those things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do think that that book probably changed a lot of yeah. lives. Maybe yeah. not for the reason right. you're saying. Right. But I do think it, it was probably a life-changing book. Well, this was, I'm always, I'm always anxious to see both of you and hear from you. Um, I used to buy the books for R.J. Joya, so I used to get to listen uh to both of you. We miss books on the nightstand, and I hope we'll get you back. We've given everybody enough to read for at least from now till the summer. (laughs) Thank you both. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Thank you, Roxanne. For a complete list of Michael and Ann's recommendations, just go to bookpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book on iTunes. And please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our sound engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>